We are continuing in our series in Mark's Gospel called The Way of Jesus. Um, And I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 through 22. It's a scene where Jesus comes to dinner. Gathering for a meal is something that was uh, very important in his time. It's still something important for our time. It's a time when hospitality is on full display. And who you've got gathered around your table says a lot about who you are and about what you care about. So let's see who Jesus gathers around his table. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. No one sews a a patch of unstrunk cloth on an old garment. Likewise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would come upon us, that in the hearing of your word, we would reflect on what it means to be your faithful disciples. We ask this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Who do you have around your table? Throughout history, Tables have been the place where great ideas are exchanged. They've also been the place where great conflicts have been resolved and where reconciliation has happened. That spirited exploration of love known as Plato's Symposium took place at a wine-soaked dinner party. The tables have also been the place where we draw boundaries about who is in and who is out. I mean, who among us has not gone through the agony of trying to figure out at a wedding reception where to stick that strange cousin. If you don't know, you might be that strange cousin. And who you have around the table says something about what you value and about who you value. 
As Luke Powery says, the table is not only where one may say grace, it is the space where one extends grace. And the truth is, who you practice hospitality with, who you invite around your table, it says something about you. And Jesus is interested at who is at the table. One scholar noted that throughout the Gospels, Jesus is always eating. Always. He is either going to a meal, at a meal, or having just come from a meal. Another said, you cannot read the New Testament without getting hungry. If you, if you do, you are not paying attention. Jesus loved to eat. Uh, this is just a snapshot of what Mark records at the table. He is eating at Peter's house. He's now eating at Levi's house. The next week, we'll see him snacking on the Sabbath. And then he's going to a house to eat, but he can't because so many people are around him. This happens a second time. Jesus looks out on the crowd and sees the 5,000 are hungry, and so he gives them something to eat. Jesus eats with his disciples. He feeds the 4,000. It worked so well the first time. He thought, why not do that again? Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper eating. And Jesus, when he gathers his disciples together on his last night as a free man on earth before the crucifixion and resurrection, he gathers them to what? To eat. It doesn't stop there. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 when he gathers with his disciple. And then in Acts chapter 10, Jews and Gentiles together make the, mark the, the boundary-breaking nature of the gospel by breaking bread with each other. Gathering around a meal is central to how Jesus thought about ministry. I think it's fair to say that if Jesus was doing ministry here in Atlanta today, you would find him cruising up and down the belt line in people's homes and in and around people's apartments. He would go to every barbecue joint. He would go to all the hipster fusion places. You would find him in the brew pubs for sure. Jesus loved to eat. In fact, he had such a reputation for eating and drinking. Uh, and not just so much about who he was eating and drinking, with, but who he was eating and drinking with, that he got in a little bit of trouble for it. In one of the other Gospels, he echoes some of the criticism that's directed toward him. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard. But like I said, the thing is, Jesus doesn't get in trouble because he's eating and drinking. He gets in trouble because of who he is eating and drinking with. To finish out that verse, Jesus notes, you say a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And that is the whole setup here in Mark's gospel this morning. Jesus is out in Galilee and a, a crowd has gathered around him as they do. And he sees a man named Levi, the aforementioned tax collector. And you need to know that tax collectors, they were despised within all of the occupied lands within the Roman Empire. Uh, but particularly so within Israel that had strong laws because of the, the Mosaic commandments that were given about, uh, you know, against exploitation and unjust business practices. And the way that taxation worked in the Roman Empire is that Rome would employ a, a person native to the area that they were in and it would task them with the job of collecting taxes and then back them up with the Roman military. And taxation was excessive. It was a major issue in Jesus' day. So these Roman regional governors, governors like Pontius Pilate and the people that they empowered like Herod, they would set a tax rate 
and then task people like Levi with going around and collecting those taxes. And for their part, the way that tax collectors made their money was by putting a surcharge on top of the already exorbitant amount of taxes that the people were paying. And they could charge whatever they wanted without restriction. That is how they got rich. There was no limit on what they could do. And like I said, they were backed up by the Roman army, so there was nothing the people could do about it. It was an industry marked by greed and corruption. And so Levi would have been hated by the people. He was working for the enemy. Not just the enemy of the nation, the enemy of God. I mean, if you think about like, Nazi collaborators in France in World War II, that level of animosity toward tax collectors people had. They were the insiders. They were the establishment people. They were the ones who were making life miserable. So Jesus, this well-known rabbi, walks up to a tax collector. No disdain in his voice, no animosity on his face, maybe even a broad smile, and he walks up to him and says, Levi, follow me. I mean, people would have started to think. The disciples that Jesus has already called, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they probably would have said, Jesus, are you out of your freaking mind? This is a tax collector for Rome. This is beyond the pale. I mean, if you want to alienate a crowd, just talk to this guy. But Jesus doesn't just talk to this guy. He has dinner at his house. And Mark notes that many tax collectors and sinners came to this dinner. To Jesus, meals were more than about food. They were a sign of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And all throughout scriptures, the sign of God's welcome toward the people is that of a feast. If you think about it, meals bookend the Bible. And in the beginning, we have God offering to Adam and Eve the fruit of the tree of life, but they eat from another tree instead and reject the invitation that God gives to them. And from that moment on, God goes to great lengths just to bring his people back to the table. Feasting is a common theme. All throughout the Old Testament, there is a a Passover meal that celebrates God's deliverance of the people from Egypt. When God makes a covenant with the people on Sinai, representatives of of Israel, they, they banquet with God in the presence of God. And the prophet Isaiah gives this image to the people in exile. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats. Sorry, vegetarians. The finest of wines. Jesus tells parables of the kingdom where the setting is a wedding feast. Jesus' first miracle in John's gospel takes place at a wedding feast. And before his crucifixion, Jesus gathers with his disciple and does what? He has a feast prepared for them. When God's image is born out, when his, when his kingdom comes in its fullness at the renewal of all things, the, the image of God's people being joined together is at a wedding feast, the, the marriage of heaven and earth where they will never hunger or thirst again. This is what God's rule is like. It's like a feast. And so meals, they're about 
way more than just food. So when Jesus is sitting down at Levi's house, he is living out a parable of what the kingdom of God is like. He is living out God's dream for the whole earth. For Jesus, meals are a sign of God's hospitality. When he is handing out invitations to a meal, he is really handing out invitations to the kingdom of God. Here's the problem, though. He's handing out these invitations to sinners and tax collectors. We've already talked about tax collectors, but sex workers, drunkards, people who don't keep the law, those who are far away from God. And watching over this scene are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and when they see this, they don't know what to make of it. Pharisees, for their part, they kind of have this reputation as being like the the bad guys in the Bible, right? Like the the ones who wear black hats. You must pay the rent, right? Bad guys. The ones who are, you know, to be feared. If you ask any kid in a a second grade, you know, who are the the Pharisees? Bad guys. But you got to know that that is not how people at the time would have seen them. That's certainly not how they would have seen themselves, The Pharisees were a religious sect within Judaism and the teachers of the law were the scholars of that sect. But if you you boil down to the deepest essence of what they were about, they were about preserving a sense of God's holiness. And they tended to be, you know, kind of strong nationalists politically. They wanted to keep away from other nations, preserve, you know, kind of the the essence of of Israel. They, uh, religiously, they were deeply conservative. They had a high view of scripture, a high view and a high concern for personal uh, morality. They had a, a low view of the culture. Now, this stands in opposition to another main sect that we see throughout the Gospels, the Sadducees. Uh, they were ones who were, you know, on the more, uh, they, did, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They, they didn't, you know, believe in a, in a strict interpretation of the Torah. But Pharisees, they, they, were, they were, you know, the people who thought that violating the law, abandoning the ritual purity codes of Israel. That is what led to the destruction of the temple. That is what led to uh, the exile and all of the misery of God's people. And so the answer for them to get back into God's graces was a renewed national effort to keep the law, all 613 of them. Personal holiness, so they thought. That is the way back to God. In fact, there was a belief among some of them that if all God's people could commit to keeping all of God's laws for one day, that would trigger the day of the Lord when God would come back, wipe away their enemies, and restore Israel to a place of prominence in the nations. They could live out this vision of being a light to the nations, the hope of the world. And so their deepest concern, their motivation, was for keeping God's law. And their mission, going back to the the founding of uh, the priest Ezra in exile, was to have a strong sense of God's holiness. In order to do that, they applied the strictest interpretation of the law, that all people would apply at all times, regardless of what station they were in life, the kind of ritual cleanliness that was meant for the priests in the temple. They'd expected that not only of themselves, but everyone around And that meant that every person was like a priest. Every home was like a temple. Every table 
like an altar to God. Question, is God's holiness, is concern for God's holiness, is that a bad passion or a good passion? It's a good passion, straight up. I think there's actually something lost when we are not concerned about God's holiness. Jesus is concerned deeply about God's holiness. Jesus is God's holiness. The problem is with an over-concern on that, you can lose also God's heart in the process that the law was meant to be a gift. It was meant to be a delight. It was meant to be a a good. But they had made it a heavy burden, a, a, a hard yoke, impossible to keep. And they created this religious culture that was oppressive where There was very much this insider-outsider dynamic at play that there were those who did not keep the law. They were on the outside, the sinners. They were on the outs, off to the side, out of the way, unwanted. But then on the other side, there were those on the inside. They were the ones who saw holiness as a personal achievement. They were right with each other. They were right with God. In fact, the word Pharisee is from the Hebrew parushi, which means the one who is separated. And so they would make it their business to be separated from Gentiles, separated from sinners, so that they could not be separated from God. And so their view of the home, uh, the table, who you ate with, who you had table fellowship with, all these things were symbolic of who was in and who was out, who was holy and who was unholy, who was clean and who was unclean, who was hated and who was not. Now, rabbi, rabbi would not eat with a sinner. That's just not done. In the ancient Near East and and, and good parts of the world still, probably in most places, eating with somebody is an offer of friendship. One scholar put it like this, in the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God, for the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. And so Jesus' hospitality opened a door to reconciliation, a door open to those who were out on the margins, to those who were estranged. They are given a seat at the table where grace is offered, where reconciliation is made possible. They're brought in to the place where strangers become friends. Anthropologist Mary Douglas notes that in every culture on the planet, meals are boundary markers. They draw the lines of who's in, who's out, who's your friend, who's your enemy, who is loved, and who is hated. And if you ever want to see how this plays out, go to any junior high cafeteria in America, and you will see the lines drawn. But for the Pharisees, these meals had become a way of excluding other people, letting them know that they were on the outside and that they wanted to get on the inside, they would need to get right with God first. It's a way of saying to sinners, you're not welcome here. You are excluded from God's presence. But as you might guess, Jesus had a drastically different approach. For him, 
a food, a, a meal. These were signs of God's welcome. If Jesus had a method of evangelism, it would be gathering people around a table, people who were far from God. For the religious leaders, they had absolutely no idea. For them, meals were a way of excluding people from God's presence, but for Jesus, they were a means of drawing people into the presence of God. Which is why he says in verse 17, it is not the well who need a physician, but the sick. I have not come to heal the righteous. I have come to heal sinners. God has to be with sinners. That is how grace works. They just don't get that that's what Jesus is about. Note the contrast. In the next scene, the Pharisees are fasting, but Jesus and his disciples are having a party. And so they ask about it. Why are your disciples not fasting? The Pharisees were known to fast twice a week. Uh, The the only day, actually, that the Torah calls for fasting is on Yom Kippur, the the Day of Atonement, similar to kind of a solemn occasion like we have uh, Ash Wednesday in Christianity. One day out of the year, but the Pharisees had kind of made a practice of fasting 104 days out of the year. Because if it's holy to fast one day, fasting 104 days, that much more holy. And they were so proud of their devotion to them, that was the sign of their holiness. Jesus, on the other hand, he ate and drank so much that he had a reputation for being a drunkard and a glutton. Now, I don't think he was those things, but you don't get that reputation unless you eat a bit, unless you drink a bit. But Jesus loved to eat and drink and enjoy a conversation over a meal where people would be gathered together to have friendship. It was a sign. It was a foretaste of the kingdom. He was all about that. And notice Jesus is eating and drinking with the riffraff of society right across the table from the sinners. Is Jesus holy? Yes. Jesus is all about holiness. It's not like Jesus is saying, oh, you exploit people fascinating tell me more about this you do you just not just just let's just have a meal of course not jesus is concerned about god's holiness but he is concerned about god's hospitality as well and there is nothing these guests have to do to earn it there's no personal holiness test they have to take to get into the meal they just have to receive the invitation and meanwhile, the Pharisees who are fasting, set apart, are stewing off in the distance, convinced that that is how holiness works. What a stark contrast between the way of Jesus and the way of religion. Jesus responds, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot as long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. All throughout the Bible, the kingdom is likened to this wedding feast. And a Jewish wedding would last for seven days. If you think that the wedding that you are, you know, have paid for was expensive, imagine it stretching out for seven days. All about food, all about gathering people together. 
And Jesus is, is eating all the time as if to say, look, the kingdom, the thing, the thing that you've been waiting for, it's here, it's in me. Look, I am a walking party. I am a celebration. Come on, I, 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 am, I am the celebration of what God is up to. The time to feast and join in is, is now. The time to fast will come for sure, but the time to rejoice is here. A new thing is here new wine, new clothes, a whole new day. God's hospitality is here, extended to you. Incidentally, the word used all throughout the New Testament to practice hospitality is this one, philozanian. It's the combination of the words philos, which is the kind of affectionate mutuality between friends, between brothers, and xenos, which can be translated either as stranger or foreigner, the one that you have no natural bond with. So philozanian is the exact opposite of xenophobia. It is welcoming in the one who is not like you. And one way to think about practicing hospitality, philozanian, is this process of allowing strangers to become friends. And when you have that in mind and you, you read the gospel, you see all, all throughout Jesus is gathering these tables with these outsiders. He's, he's acting out a parable of what the fed, wedding feast of the lamb is, is all about. This is what when God gathers people together, this is what it looks like because in Jesus, hospitality is always free. There's no way to pay it back. There is nothing to bring because the table has already been set and there is no amount of posturing that's going to get you an invitation. You just have to come as a guest invited. And all throughout his ministry, the ones who take him up on the invitation are the ones who know that they don't have a chance of earning a spot at the table. While at the same time, those who turn away from him are the ones who are convinced that they are holy enough to get any invitation that God has on offer. Jesus too turns to the ones who are just grateful to be invited. And it hinges on the recognition that this is all a gift of grace just to get the nod from Jesus. Jesus says that God is doing a new thing and it happens around the table. Tim Chester wrote a book uh, a while back that I read. Rusty, do you know him? I thought so. He's a tear fun guy. Yeah. It's called Meals with Jesus. And he, he basically argues that uh, Jesus' strategy for turning the world upside down is this. You ready for this? Invite somebody over for dinner. Invite somebody for dinner. If you don't have a home, invite them out. If you don't have money, have a picnic in the park. Enjoy a meal. Invite people who wouldn't expect it. Share the best of what you have. Share the best of who you are. Share your life together. Talk about what is important to you and most importantly, listen. And then call it a night. That's Jesus' mission strategy right there. Henry Nouwen writes that hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people but to offer them space where change can take place. 
That's what Jesus does when he invites us to his table. He takes us in while we were yet enemies and strangers and he calls us friends. Hospitality begins when we create the space for strangers to become friends. When we offer the best of ourselves. When we allow space for God to begin the work of transformation. So I'll go back to the question that I opened with. Who is gathered around your table? Jill and I were talking about this with our community group a couple weeks ago that one of the, the things that was most sad about like when we got here is that having people over was not really a thing uh, to do. Um, but we've been kind of chomping at the bit to have people over I went to a conference this week uh, in Dallas and quite unexpectedly ran into this guy. His name is Ron Brown. He is a friend and a guy who I called on more than one occasion to uh, get some advice, to get some counsel, to help bail me out of a stupid thing that I had gotten myself into. Um, Jill went with him to Kenya 10 years ago. Uh, He is one of the most humble, most kind, most generous people that I know. Uh, he, the very definition of a spirit-led person, Ron Brown. I got uh, this picture of him preaching because he's also the kind of guy that, you know, he could break out in a sermon that would blow your mind on a moment's notice. <laughs> he's just, his life with God is rich and he shares out of that life. Well, we were talking together. He, he serves as the executive director of Teen Challenge in Southern California, which is a substance abuse and prevention program. And a high percentage of the people that he works with are coming out of a life of uh, gang violence and uh, many of them have been in and out of prison. And they they come uh, because they are looking for a new foundation to build their lives upon. And Ron has relationships that go deep with everyone who comes through the door. They were a ministry partner of our church and One way that that became tangible through Ron's leadership was he suggested that once a month we invite these men who are going through the the program to come to church for a worship service, but then afterwards to go over across the way to the fellowship hall where we would have dinner and we would play games together. It's one of my favorite times of the month. We called it Super Saturday. And Not just because it was a ton of fun, not just because it was something that my kids really actually kind of got pumped going to, but because for a couple of hours, our fellowship hall was transformed into a family room. And amid all of the conversations, amid all of the laughter, there was this deep sense of joy and gratitude in these men's lives. These men who were going through this this most intense season of their lives, some of them having been cut off from their, their social networks or separated from their families, and they found themselves surrounded by a bunch of people who were strangers, little kids and grandmothers alike, with hardened gang members tatted up. You know, just picture the scene. These guys had come to do the hard work of allowing God to till up the soil in their hearts so that he could plant something new. And I found that more often than not, what grew out of that soil was a sense of gratitude. On so many occasions, these, the joy that these guys had, having had their life turned upside down and being rebuilt in the grace and mercy of Jesus reminded me that I take that grace and that mercy for granted so often. 
So I was talking to Ron and I was reminiscing on those days. I couldn't help but think that this is what Jesus got to experience all the time. Rod spent his life setting a table for people so that they could find the grace of Jesus. And sometimes he had to drag the good religious types kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. But it was always, always worth it for him. He spent a life expanding the communion table as a space to not only remember Jesus' sacrifice, but a point, to point toward the communion that takes place whenever we gather for a meal or a cup of coffee or over a game of apples to apples. This is what God's hospitality is like. Whenever we invite people to come and be with, we are inviting Jesus to be there. Hospitality transforms us. And we become a community of thankful guests who know that if it were not for the grace of God, none of us would have a seat at the table. Who you got around your table tells a story. The question is, is it the same story that Jesus is telling? Maybe the world does change one table at a time. Think about all of the divisions, all of the, the, the ways in which our polarized world is operating right now. Maybe it changes one table at a time, one neighbor at a time, one conversation at a time, and strangers become friends. For those of us who have been gifted with much, maybe it is time to build a longer table.